In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Hi, this is Cami. Sarah Monroe is our guest this week on Money Tales. In our experience, people don't give much thought about the implications of facing a short-term or a long-term disability. Sarah was in that camp. As a young woman, she experienced a physical disability. The injury came on slowly, and the recovery was a steep hill to climb. This experience impacted Sarah financially and taught her an important life lesson about living with intention. Sarah is a versatile marketing communications director with a diverse career in public relations, social media, and online content. Through collaboration and creative team leadership, she incorporates visionary ideas into strategic cross-channel communications. Hi, this is Sandy. Here are three key Money Tales conversation topics Sarah hits on in this conversation. First, how for women entrepreneurs, Banking and access to capital can be the biggest challenge, leaving many feeling marginalized. Second, the value of having a designated accountability partner to hold your feet to the fire. And third, how as a small business owner, it's important to understand all financial planning choices, especially when it comes to the wide array of retirement plans. We hope you share this episode with a friend and please subscribe to Money Tales on your favorite podcast platform. Now... On to our conversation with Sarah Monroe. Hello, Money Tales listeners. This is Cami, and I'm here with my co-host, Sandy. Hey, Cami, how are you doing today? Doing well, Sandy. At home right now, we are really excited. We're planning our trip back to see my in-laws in Northern Ireland. It's been three years as a result of the global pandemic. Thank goodness for technology that we can see each other through the WhatsApp video calls but it's just not the same until you can hug them and touch them. So we're really excited. How's all the travel planning coming together? It's coming together, Sandy, but it's eye-opening and it's causing us to have a lot more money conversations here because everything is so expensive. From flights to rental cars, it's eye-opening and it just makes you pause and really say, what are our priorities? And this is such our priority and you get past it, but it's a great time to reflect on our family values. Are you putting together a budget for the trip? How are you guys approaching that? Instead of saying this is how much we want to spend, it's more we are tracking our expenses so that we know what we're spending, but we're not capping it because we do come back to this is really, really important to us. And we're very thankful we're staying with family along our way because that takes out that cost. I just can't imagine anybody else having to pay room and board 
That's great that you're being so thoughtful about the travel and checking expenses along the way will also allow you to make decisions about whether there are other trade-offs on spending when you're back home you might not do as a result. So thanks for sharing your value-driven travel plans. And I hope you guys have a really great time when you're with your family. What a nice reunion that will be. Thanks, Sandy. Very much looking forward to it. Let's welcome our guest today, Sarah Monroe. Welcome to the Money Tales podcast. Hello. Thank you for having me. I love how you open the show with a values-driven story because that's a lot of what I do when it comes to my money decisions as well. Thanks, Sarah. Would you introduce yourself and in doing so, provide a couple pivotal moments that really influenced you as you were growing up and impacting the person you are today? Sure. I am based in the Northeast of the United States, close to the Canadian border. I like to say that I grew up in several states as I grew up in a town that's in Vermont, but on the border of New Hampshire. And I have a second hometown in Maine. So I, in the last seven years, since I started a consulting business in communications, digital marketing, event planning, I have been able to spend time in all three states. So it's been a wonderful opportunity for me, when you talk about travel, to dig in a little more to this place that I call home and find a greater sense of place as I move across the states. Pivotal moments. I have to think growing up in New England with two different New England parents. I had a rural side of our family and a city side of our family. So it was interesting to see how the generational traditions played out. The rural side of the family had a garden, not just because they liked to grow things, but because it was essential to feeding their family. They would go on fishing trips and picnics, not just to have some fun on a Saturday afternoon, but to actually feed the family. All of the kids and the cousins, they caught what they ate that day and they ate the vegetables from the garden and things like that. The urban side of the family were a little more world travelers, yet they also had the impact of the 1930s crash. And that still lingers in the back of our minds as we have cleaned out grandparents' homes and we find their little notebooks where they really track how they had recovered financially from that market crash and made us be a little more intentional about how are we spending our money and how are we tracking our funding. Generational roots certainly influenced me. And then through my adult life, going back to school, I'm one of those Gen Xers that had some student loans because I decided to switch careers very early on and accrued student debt from graduate school. And that layered on top of the fact that I had a disability when I was a younger woman and needed to have a few years of recovery from that. That impacted me financially for sure, also impacted me and how I live with intention. So I'm much more intentional now about physically how I'm doing after recovering from a physical injury and disability, and also how I choose to work with clients, how I show up for them, who I work with, what projects I'm willing to take on, where I live, even things like travel. We are all still in a pandemic and considering where should we go, what should we do, yet also layer on the financial costs, as you were saying, Cami, just to be more mindful of that. And then also thinking of the climate impact. 
what are the things that I'm doing? How am I spending my money or saving my money in intentional ways that align with the values that I want as a human being and as a business person? Great introduction, Sarah. I think if we can go back to your history, coming from a family that's both rural and urban, but with common traits, I don't want to assume scarcity mindset, but being really cautious with money. How did that impact you? And were there conversations around money in your family? It's funny. My mother will say that her parents could rub two pennies together and get a nickel. (laughs) They found a way to be very resourceful when they had six children growing up. They were still able to save and work hard. In their retirement, they had a little cabin on the lake. Their money journey through hard work and being very intentional wasn't so much a scarcity piece. I don't think people thought this may have been a family that was at the poverty line. I think if we put those words to them now, maybe so. Yet they made the most of all of their skills and the resources that they had at hand to raise an incredible family that's filled with nurses and engineers. And the next generation of us are all professionals, whether we have a higher education degree or not, all doing really well, have that family legacy and those great memories of going on those picnics. The urban side of the family, it's very cool to look through pictures and things like that, but also to know that they were intentional and they may have had more wealth, yet were probably more concerned in tracking their money more closely than the other side of the family. Because of the historical experience in the Great Depression. Yeah, exactly. Tell us about college. College is a big change in life. Tell us a little bit about it and how you approached it from a financial standpoint. From a financial standpoint, I was really lucky to have merit scholarships. I was a young woman interested in STEM. That's my undergrad. I was going to be a scientist and solve all the genetic diseases in the world, right? And I was lucky that some of the family money had been set aside to support the grandchildren in college. So we're lucky with that. I was able to finish undergrad without debt. And part of that was a contributing factor in where I looked for schools. I really looked at college as where would I want to go? Being a young woman in STEM, of course, there were lots of offers. Check out this college, check out that college. And I really thought about what kind of on-campus life do I want I thought I was going to go to the family school where my great-great-grandfather taught and my great-grandfather taught and my grandfather went, but the campus life was not what I wanted for my undergraduate time. They made it financially attractive to go as well because I had that family legacy, but it came down to how I felt on campus. And so that's ultimately why I chose the university that I went to. And that happened to be one where I would finish without debt. And then when it came to grad school, our family said, grad school is kind of on your own. (laughs) So that's where I accrued the debt. Is that when you changed course away from STEM? I did. I decided I liked working with scientists, but I didn't want to be one. And I thought that I would go into more of the administrative side of scientific research And then found the whole world of public relations and marketing and program management and public policy and really haven't looked back. 
Oh, that's cool. They were shouting your name, huh? (laughs) Exactly. So I still work adjacent to people in STEM. I've worked on STEM education programs most recently and had a lot of fun encouraging young people to explore STEM and also introduce them to careers that I never knew existed. I never knew the depth of engineering or the depth of patent law or other pieces that didn't require me standing at a lab bench. And when you went to grad school and decided to take on debt to fund it, it sounds like intentionality is a through line in your life. You knew what you were doing. When did the disability occur? That was some nerve damage. Over time, it was repetitive use. It was from sitting at keyboards and bad desks. So everybody out there do an ergonomic study, especially your work from home habits. All of us, after two years of sitting on the couch typing, it's not good for you. Yeah, I ended up having nerve damage in one of my arms and the usual carpal tunnel thing that we all seem to manage to come across. Was this after grad school? Yeah, this was after grad school. So ironically, when I was working less with my hands, if that makes any sense. Oh, interesting. (laughs) Were you prepared for the financial aspects of a disability? No, it came on slowly, but the recovery was a pretty steep crash. So I was lucky that I was able to handle all of my finances through it, but I then was more intentional about what work I was doing, where I was working, and led me to a new position where I did take a pay cut. It's interesting when people find this out, now it's been a decade and a half and people don't really know this about me. But it did take those first couple of jobs afterward for them to take a chance on someone that at that time I needed to use voice-activated software. People didn't really use that at that time. Now we use it all the time, right? The speed texting and the voice messaging and all of that. We use all these tools now. They're very common, but then it wasn't. There was some reluctance. Would this be a disrupting factor in the workplace? And then, of course, when I came on board, they're like, how do we ever question this? (laughs) It worked out, but it sounds a little stressful in terms of finding employment. Yeah. And I shouldn't be disparaging toward my employers either. I think it's a fleeting question for one, how we accommodate this. Should we find a different office space? There was just some questions about the logistics of bringing me on. Another was because I learned the system. Another was you have to do what? And you're bringing what with you? Keyboard trays and special chairs. Again, not out of the ordinary for what we do now. But it also opened up the minds of my coworkers about how people who may have a disability is not disruptive at all. It might take a thing or two, a different chair or a keyboard tray or a piece of software. And that person is as capable as anybody else. I really appreciate what you and others were doing at a time, pioneering what we now call having a growth mindset, where this person's additive, it just shows so much about you and the organization and you can be productive. So I really appreciate that. You mentioned you had to take a pay cut. Would you talk a little bit about that? Like why and how that feel and how'd you approach it? Tell us the story behind that. I approached it in that I had two ways I could have gone. I could have gone to organizational development. I could have gone the route of big consulting firms that now no longer exist. Got to stay away from that route. (laughs) Exactly. Be on the road 150 days out of the year, this constant churn, know that 
I could spend the next five years getting a lot of experience and being burned out in the end and already being physically burned out to think, what is it that I really want? And what's the opportunity that I want to take? I'd actually just been volunteering at this little community clinic and learning fundraising and marketing. I'd known grant writing and grant reporting and program management and things like that up until that point, but hadn't actually written a fundraising letter or written a press release. And my boss was like, no problem, you can do this. (laughs) So I want you to transition from being a volunteer to being an employee because we've got these big projects. I've loved it. I've never looked back. I love what I do. And I decided, why don't I take a chance? Because the other option is to really flame out in five years. And it's funny, during that job that I had, I met someone who did exactly that. He and I, our careers tracked the same way up until that point. And he went to the big Arthur Anderson or Deloitte or something like that. And I went the other way. And in the end, we ended up in the same place. So you're experiencing life as someone with a disability, trying to cover your bills. You got employment that worked out. You reached a pivot point. You decided to go with your heart and not really worry about the money. How did that feel? And how is the financial piece coming together? I was confident that I had the support systems in place that should anything happen, I had friends and family that were behind me with this step. Having that net as you take the leap. When Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In book first came out, I heard someone say, It's okay to lean in, just have someone hold your ankles. (laughs) (laughs) I knew I had a few people in life holding my ankles. Financially, it was a moment in time and well worth the investment. When you think about lifetime career development, it was the best move for me to make. That's such an important observation because our careers and our financial abilities do tend to go in steps, really being intentional about what we're doing. Are we focusing on skill development that's ultimately going to lead to a more satisfying life that likely has some financial rewards coming with it if we really are developing those skills? Or are we just plateauing because it's comfortable? So thank you for bringing that up. And thank you also for bringing up your experience with the disability, because I think that's something that not many people think about. And it's such an important part of personal financial planning. There are a variety of different risks that we can face at any moment in time. Disabilities don't happen that often on a relative basis, but they do happen and they can be short-term or long-term. They often have financial implications. Exactly. And especially if you're working for yourself. The last seven years I've worked for myself, I've had some fractional employment where I've been on staff part-time or right now full-time somewhere and continuing with consulting clients. I have a threshold. I have the emergency fund that is not touched so that I know that if anything happens, I'll be fine. But as a sole proprietor, we don't think about things like the short-term and long-term disability and retirement, especially retirement as a self-employed person. Trying to set those things up is a huge expense. And there aren't the greatest options for you unless you really go with significant financial planning. The minimal amount that you can invest every year is not enough to build a retirement account. Like through an IRA, looking at alternatives. Yeah. So there are self-employed products too, where you can invest a lot more. 
There are, there's a whole range of them and they have different features and some can be quite lucrative, but I agree. Most people aren't trained like we are in the financial planning world around those plans. So how did you get up to speed on choices and make decisions? I know your podcast listeners can't see how hard I'm laughing at that because I don't feel like I'm capable yet. I really don't. I've been trying to figure this out as I go along. Like a lot of small business people, you're on the path and you are building the car and building the road and building the guardrails and (laughs) building the direction all at the same time. Sometimes it's, I have enough bandwidth right now to be able to know I need to dump some money into the account that the person who helps me with my taxes says I should do. And then trying to look for that space of exploring all of the different options in the products. So I feel like I'm woefully unprepared for this, even though I take workshops and listen to podcasts and read all the products that I think I can take advantage of. It's a lot to learn and it's a lot to keep straight in your mind. It's overwhelming. And it sounds like you are reaching out. So you're not trying to do it yourself. Kudos to you. A lot of people try and do everything themselves. And that's really hard. Would you tell us a little bit more about seven years ago, starting your own thing? That's scary. It is scary. I And exciting. Exciting and terrifying all at the same time. (laughs) I got recruited from the public and nonprofit sector into the private sector by a friend who ran a small business. Over the course of a few years, we did build some great products for small businesses, but ultimately he positioned his business to sell. And that meant eliminating the small business division that I'd been working in. So I was thinking, what am I going to do now? Am I going to stay in the private sector? Am I going to stay in the nonprofit sector? The next day I was at a networking event and my first and still longest standing client said, I'm hiring you. I had done some pro bono work for her and she said, I'm hiring you. Like, okay, I guess I'm a business. (laughs) You didn't have a choice. You know, when we talk about intention, this really was not intentional. In fact, if you asked me every year up until that point and after, I would have said, I have no interest in running my own business or being in business for myself. And I've done consulting while I've had full-time jobs that I never thought I would leave and still took on some consulting work at that time too. I do like the challenge of consulting work. And I've learned a lot of lessons over those seven years of who I will and won't work with, where my strengths lie, working with other consultants to provide a more well-rounded package for clients. So I've learned a lot as I've navigated this sea of small business and I've had a great time at it. I've also realized that having that fractional employment also works for me. So that not everything is on my shoulders trying to not just manage financially, but also the operations, knowing that half of my time or three quarters of my time, I don't have to be the operations person. I don't have to decide what email server we're going to use. There's other people in that team that do that. And I can just focus on the work that I have in front of me. Like the diversification of income streams. Yeah, you're not always reliant on getting the next client to fill in when a project is ending. I've been lucky though, most of my clients are long-term clients. Sarah, you've had so many great life experiences so far, building upon past experiences and always focused on where you're going. What does your future look like? It may change year to year, given the opportunities that I have in front of me. I have 
been fortunate to have a strong professional network where people come to me with work or when I approach them, they can talk to the folks that I've worked with before and know that I can handle the job that they have in front of them. I've been fortunate that the phone keeps ringing, but I am at that point seven years, right? Am I going to continue with the consultancy or do I want to find the security of a full-time, long-term position? Up until now, those fractional employments have been grant-funded. So I know that there's an end to them. Right now, I have the time to really think about what is it going to look like in 2023 when this next grant ends? What will my career look like? And it's an exciting place to explore. Not terrifying because I have the security. You've built your foundation, which is great. That's exciting that you have another potential fork in the road that you're considering. Going back to your comments about retirement plans, I want to share with you and with listeners that Asperian has a blog called Fathom. And if you go to the Asperian blog, our colleague, Michelle Eversman, has written an article called Financial Tips for the Self-Employed. And in this article at the bottom, she has a really beautiful summary of different retirement plans for self-employed people. So check that out while you still have the self-employment income coming. I think that's a good place to go to get a snapshot of information that can help you out. Thanks for that tip. I will definitely check that out. As a female entrepreneur, do you think your experience is different than a male entrepreneur? I'm working in the gender equity space and on that question through a few projects that are on my desk. I have been a self-funded female entrepreneur. What I do, I basically do with a computer and a keyboard and a phone and a good internet connection. (laughs) So I don't have a lot of capital needs. If I wanted to expand, would I need any kind of financial vehicles to help me do that, to bridge the time as I'm onboarding an employee? Maybe. But I know for other women entrepreneurs, this is a huge problem, especially if you are developing a product, developing a physical space, that access to capital is convoluted, confusing. You need to be in the system or know the system or know someone who knows the system. I'm actually reading through some data of surveys with women entrepreneurs nationally, as well as here, I'm mostly based in Vermont. Finances, banking, and access to capital are the biggest places where women feel marginalized. And the stories of discrimination still that I am reading right now are unfathomable. But when we think back, especially here in the United States, women have only been able to have a credit card in their name with no cosigner since 1973 couldn't get a mortgage loan until the 1980s or something like that. It's been less than 50 years where women have been seen as independent financial entities in the eyes of these institutions. And the stories that I'm hearing about women who are trying to access capital, trying to access loans, women who have had successful business loans with a banking institution and then go to that same institution where they have the history and are being denied for mortgages. Or don't you have a husband or a relative who can co-sign this loan? It's really shocking and something that we definitely need to work with in a systems-wide capacity to bring about change. Because women businesses statistically earn more and do better than male-owned businesses. 
we do need systems to change. We need them to change quickly because women are generating and controlling more wealth than ever before. And that trend will continue in the years ahead. So I am hopeful and appreciate the work that you're doing. Things are going to change for the better and we can get rid of some of these old clogs in those systems and free things up. I'm not saying that all bankers are bad. There are some very progressive banks, B corporations that have this social mission, but people don't know about it. That's the other piece is knowing about where are the people that want to support you and how do we connect everybody together? Keep having these money conversations. Mm -hmm. So Sarah, tell us, what's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? One thing that's helped me as a woman in business, I'm going to share this tip, is having masterminds. So I have two masterminds and the number one rule about masterminds is that no one talks about masterminds. So no one knows (laughs) how you can get support around masterminds. So I have an accountability partner, but then I also have a mastermind team that helps me with business operations. My accountability partner and I this morning, were just talking about a week of focus on finances. I assure everybody who's listening, we did not set this up. You two have no idea that this was actually written right here on a sticky note in front of my face. I had a financial conversation this morning with my accountability partner. And starting Tuesday is the next financial conversation about my retirement contributions. I do have support from an accountant who helps me figure out what my quarterly contributions should be toward taxes and things like that. So this is my week of finance. And it just so happens to be the day that I talk to you too. Sounds like you think about it a lot. It's not just your week of finance. I really appreciate you sharing that last comment about your accountability partner. What a fantastic tip for all of us to think about. That's the whole idea. We don't have to do this all on our own. Thank you for sharing so much of yourself, talking about things like your disability and how you made it through and being an entrepreneur. We really appreciate you sharing so much and joining us on Money Tales. I appreciate you saying that. It sounds like I think about it a lot because it doesn't feel that way. Thank you for having me. It's been a great opportunity for me to think more deeply about my finances. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks for listening to the Money Tales podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with someone you think would benefit from listening and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Your ratings and reviews help more people find our podcast. If you're inspired to gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Asperient. Go to asperient.com forward slash start a dialogue. Or you can email Sandy and me at podcast at See you next time.